Welcome to Odd Drummer Gaming, the podcast about stuff. My name is Edmund. In this episode, I I am going to talk about Mortal Kombat Annihilation. I watched it, excuse me, I endured it moments ago. But we'll get to it at the end of the episode. Um, let me look at my list. I don't have much to talk about because I re... I just recorded an episode a, a few days ago, and I really should spread these more out, but I figured, you know, I've, I watched three movies, and I watched Mortal Kombat Annihilation. I might as well record, because I like to record relatively quickly after I watch the movie, just because the memory is sort of fresh in my brain. Voice crack. And so I don't really have a lot to talk about since I just recorded. Um, I was actually scrolling kind of hard on gaming news. I couldn't find anything I wanted to talk about. Something about an EA tweet that I probably don't really care about. Um, I was looking at movieweb.com and couldn't really find anything interesting that I wanted to even mention. So, I mean, I don't know what to say. Um, both news beat, just nothing. Music beat, nothing. Gaming beat is the same as before. I've been playing Sonic Origins on and off, playing Super Mario Odyssey, playing Snow Brothers. I did recently purchase Sonic Forces. And again, I, I don't know why... I'll probably, I don't know, let's just move on, I'm, I'm exhausting myself, um, admin sad stuff, I, I got nothing, there's nothing to talk about, um, there's, let's just move on to the movie beat, this is gonna be a real sad, depressing slog of an episode, I can already tell. Um, so I, in the last episode, I talked about Working Girls, The Working Girls, 1974 movie directed by um, Stephanie Rothman. And I was looking at her Wikipedia page, and it, it was kind of a hefty uh, Wikipedia page. And I think if you are into, well, I don't know, I'm not... I don't consider myself a student of film, um, but I would say she's worth looking into if you are interested in in movies. I and I would also say, especially if you are a female, because the vibe I am getting from her, I feel like is she was a talented female filmmaker, um, ambitious. But I think due to the, you know, constraints, restraints, um, everything going against her as an up-and-coming female filmmaker in the 70s, I think she struggled. I think she struggled to make what she wanted to make. And it's kind of a bummer. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know if that's a fact. Because I will say... None of the movies I watched of hers I I loved, I will say that. 
which is again kind of a bummer but let me kind of give you some highlights off of her wikipedia page so she was raised in la studied sociology sociology at uc berkeley she became interested in filmmaking after seeing the seventh seal 1957 which i've never seen nor heard of she didn't know at that point how to become a filmmaker, but that movie apparently was kind of life-changing for her. She didn't think it was possible to become a film- filmmaker. But she's like, I, this is what I want to do. I want to make a film like this, highly thoughtful, European-like, small films. I wanted to be a writer-director. So from 1960 to 1963, she studied filmmaking at the University of Southern California, which, um, if dog barking if you're unfamiliar with uh, usc it's a huge school in california it's it's a very popular very good school and i believe it's hard to get in i don't think i applied to it but i applied to four ucs and i only got to you into uc riverside um that reminds me there was a joke about uc riverside in Um, he's all that starring Robbie from Cobra Kai and he was talking to his friend and he was like you see Riverside really and she's like yeah it seems like um, I'd be able to get a degree pretty easily I and it's close to Legoland and then Robbie was like isn't UC San Diego the one close to Legoland so, the, so they kind of take a jab at my alma mater, um, and I have no problem with that because I graduated from UC Riverside in three years, and I am currently working part-time at an Amazon warehouse. But back to Stephanie Rothman. She went to USC, where she was mentored by the chairman of the cinema department, Bernard Cantor. She became the first woman to be awarded the Director's Guild of America Fellowship, awarded annually to the director of a student film. This, along with her academic qualifications, garnered her a job offer from Roger Corman in 1964 to work as his assistant. Corman chose her over another applicant who later became his wife, Julie. Um, I'm not too familiar with Roger Corman. I know Pat and Joe from We'll See You in Hell um, often reference him and mention him. And I I get him confused with Robert Altman. But Roger Corman, I believe he made a lot of movies on the cheap. I think that, that was his claim to fame. A bunch of sci-fi movies. If um, I, apologize, I apologize if that's inaccurate. But back to Stephanie Rothman, it was, here's a quote, it was rare for anyone, um, I think it's a quote from her, Uh, yeah, it is, it was rare for anyone who did not have family connections to find employment in the film industry in or outside of the jurisdiction of the labor unions, recalled Rothman later. It was even rarer for a woman to be hired, it was traditional to exclude us from nearly all types of work behind the camera. So, it's funny. She says it was rare for anyone who did not have family connections to find employment in the film industry. Uh, So already she's talking about the 
the struggles that she had as a, first of all, as anyone trying to make it in, into the film industry, but especially as a woman trying to make it in the, to the film industry. I didn't mean for this episode to turn into me just reading Wikipedia, but I, I ended up watching three of her movies, and that's all I'm going to talk about in the movie beat for this episode, so that's why um, I'm doing this. Rothman worked in a variety of jobs for Corman on films such as Beach Ball, Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet, and Queen of Blood. Here's another quote from Rothman. I did everything, write new scenes, scout locations, cast actors, direct new sequences, and edit final cuts. It was a busy, exhilarating time. Roger did not teach me these skills. I learned them in film school, but he did share his greater experience with me, giving me useful criticism and, equally important, information on how to efficiently organize work on the set so that a film could be shot on schedule. The schedules we set were much shorter than those of the major studios. Since it was his own money he was using, Roger did not want a film to go either over schedule or over budget. He also taught me a valuable lesson in psychology. He encouraged me, often expressing his confidence in my abilities, and I therefore tried to do the best work for him that I could. Corman had Rothman reshoot large segments of the movie that became Bloodbath, 1966. I shot about another 30 minutes of original footage, original footage, and it was made into what I only call a mishmash, she recalls. I don't know what that means, mishmash. Um, unintended joint collaboration would be a more accurate way of putting it. She and Jack Hill share director- directorial credit for the film. It's a bikini world. Her work impressed Corman enough to give her her first full directing job on It's a Bikini World, shot in 1965 but not released until 1967. I I looked for her movies on the app or the website Just Watch and I could not find It's a Bikini World. So I don't know if it's not streaming or what but it's I couldn't find it, so I was unable to watch it. She did not enjoy the experience. I became very depressed after making It's a Bikini World. I had very ambivalent feelings about continuing to be a director if that was all I was going to be able to do. So I literally went into a kind of retirement for several years until more than anything in the world I wanted to make films. So it talks about the student nurses... So let me talk, well, I don't know if I should read this first or talk about my experience with the movie. I'll just talk about, well, actually, I watched Bloodbath first. So let's talk about Bloodbath. Bloodbath is a 1966 American horror film directed by Jack Hill and Stephanie Rothman, starring William Campbell, Linda Saunders, Marissa Mathis, and Sid Haig. Um, Sid Haig is the only name I recognize. I recognized him from The Big Doll House. I believe he was the guy who groped, um, Pam Greer, um, through the prison bars. I guess he's a big star. I, I he has a hefty Wikipedia page, but I don't. Um, I'm I'm not like a big Sid Haig fanatic. I'm not too familiar with him. I just recognize his name from that movie. 
but um, I I wouldn't say he stars in Bloodbath. He's you know he acts in it, but he doesn't have a hefty he doesn't have a big role. Bloodbath is definitely my um, favorite out of the three movies that I watched. Um, directed by Stephanie Rothman. So, Bloodbath. I there's there's some sort of legend that I I didn't follow between this mysterious painter. He's kind of he's like a kind of a good-looking man who paints, and his paintings are sought after. But he paints like women, like dead women. And I guess he's a popular painter and people like his work. People love his paintings. But he, like, I don't know if he lives in this weird, mysterious tower, but he works up there. He paints. And I believe he brings women up there and then I guess he kills them. And he turns into some sort of vampire creature. And I guess he lures beautiful women and they start to disappear and they end up dead and it's a cool movie there are some scenes that are generally creepy i saw um it's black and white and you know there's a interesting use of shadows in different scenes and there's like a surreal sequence where he's like looking at a an empty painting and then you can kind of see a faint uh like outline of a woman and then the woman becomes animated not animated but she comes to life and there's this laughter that really creeped me out um i i would assume that it was like a woman laughing and then they slightly pitched it down because that's what it sounded like to me and it was just creepy and there was a surreal surreal sequence where he's painting and then somehow he ends in the middle of he ends up in the middle of a desert and it looks really cool and there's a woman i think it's a uh, lori sanders who she plays dorian but also this uh melitza character and she's kind of dancing awkwardly moving back and forth and she has like long black hair and the hair is flowing and it's just a really creepy imagery that uh, kind of stuck with me and i i liked it and at the <laughs> at the end of the movie um this vampire creature is kind of chasing dorian and she's she runs kind of back into antonio sordi's the main character's tower and he ties her up and then these these women who i don't i don't know what he did to them but I guess he killed them, but he puts some sort of like paste or some sort of sticky, gross, thick, liquidy material over them. And three or more of them start to um, become alive, almost like uh, zombies. And they just the way it was shot, the way their eyes moved, like it was very creepy, very unsettling. And then they go after Antonio Sordi and um, the end. But if you're a horror fan and you haven't heard of or haven't seen Bloodbath, I would recommend it. I thought it was very cool. So that's 
Blood Bath. And then I watched The Student Nurses, which is the second favorite of mine out of these three. Although I didn't really like it. Student Nurses is a 1970 American film directed by Stephanie Rothman. It was the second film from New World Pictures and the first in the popular Nurses cycle of exploitation movies. It has since become a cult film. And they actually call Bloodbath, um, they refer to Bloodbath as a cult film. Actually, I don't see it anywhere, so maybe it's not. But it should be. It was... It was by far my favorite out of these three. But the student nurses, let me try to describe it. It just felt weird and kind of disconnected. But there's four student nurses and um, they all, they're all, I guess they're all studying to become a nurse. And they, they all have different weird experiences. I actually wanted to rename this movie a bunch of unethical bitches. I think that would be more appropriate for this film. Um, so one of them, let let me try to get the names right. So one of them's named Fred, and she um, she is attracted to this young doctor, so she invites him to her place, I think, and then she's in bed and in the dark and then this this guy opens the door and she says come right on in doctor and she thought it was the doctor he was attracted to she was attracted to but it wasn't it was a different doctor and so she like has sex with the wrong guy and it's kind of treated like they just shrug it off like Oh no, like a Benny Hill sketch or something like, oh, oh no, I had sex with the wrong guy. And that was weird. And then so Fred, it's spelled P-H-R-E-D, which is um, kind of cool, actually. But she kind of has drama with this young doctor. That's her story. I honestly can't remember what else kind of hijinks she gets into. Um, although later on she tries desperately to stop her boyfriend from performing an illegal abortion, this movie gets into some um, serious issues. Sharon is um, a nurse who gets assigned to this young guy, I think, yeah, and he he's very sick. I forget his condition, but he's essentially dying. And he's kind of a grump. And at first, they're at odds with each other. And he um, he's kind of like making fun of her, giving her a hard time. And she's just doing her best, trying to take care of him. And then over time, they kind of start to like each other. And he's like... He's like, I, you know, I never got to run. I never got to do any of this stuff. I would love to just run, run around the block. And I guess he can't. So at one point he tells his nurse, can you, can you just run for me? I just want to watch. And at one point she takes off her clothes and then lies in bed with him. Just like, I don't think anything happened. They don't really show it, but 
she's like naked with a patient like with a young boy on you know young man patient so that's why that's why i said unethical um and then lynn um well lynn has a weird one where at one point there is a some sort of uh mexican demonstration that gets out of hand it's like they're trying to demonstrate something and then I guess someone disagrees with what they're saying. So a, a fight ensues or a, a riot. One guy gets wounded. So this other guy takes it to the hospital and Lynn is there uh, taking taking care of this patient. And she gets roped in with this guy and she wants to help these people who... I guess her issue was immigration. So these people want help, but they can't get it. And like these, like this guy said, this this lady got hurt, but she refused to go to the hospital because she um, she can't let the hospital know that she has a job. Because if they find that out, they'll take away her welfare, and she has a bunch of kids. So this movie is dealing with like significant issues and I guess that's why this movie is, has become a cult film over the years. And um Priscilla uh she she's going out with this guy and he encourages her to take drugs with him and she does and then she gets pregnant then she tries to appeal to some board some department if she can get a an abortion they won't let her because they don't want to appear that they show favor towards students or something like that so fred's boyfriend assisted by the two other nurses um end up giving this girl an abortion like i don't know this movie kind of goes in crazy directions and I just didn't really enjoy it. And um, I understand that the issues are important. And maybe this was a... This movie wasn't... Maybe people weren't expecting to receive such important uh, messages in this movie. I I don't know. But um, I didn't really like it. I didn't enjoy it. The... um, You know, the performances weren't uh, great... I would say, and you know, there's there's random scenes with them like riding in cars with music playing, riding on a motor motorcycle with music playing. This one girl is like playing frisbee in the park with a bunch of people, and she keeps missing the fri- frisbee. I'm like, I don't know. It's like, what's what's going on here? Um, so you know, I I don't want to read through the whole wikipedia but it's i just thought it was interesting and i feel like this woman uh stephanie rothman her kind of trajectory in the film industry is interesting and then the third well let me go back to the wikipedia so corman hired rothman to write and direct new world pictures second film the student nurses um, about the adventures of four young nursing students. Um, 
Although an exploitation movie, Rothman was given creative freedom to explore political and social issues which interested her, such as abortion and immigration. The Student Nurses was a considerable hit. So the third and last movie I watched directed by Stephanie Rothman was The Velvet Vampire from 1971. By the way, uh, Bloodbath I watched on Prime Video. The Student Nurses I watched on Tubi. The Velvet Vampire I watched on Prime Video. I, But I think I have a, an AMC and Shudder subscription. But Velvet Vampire I thought was the worst out of these three. So I don't recommend really going out of your way to watch it. Velvet Vampire, also known as Cemetery Girls, is a 1971 American vampire film directed by Stephanie Rothman. It stars... Celeste Yarnall, Michael Blodgett, Sherry Miles, Gene Shane, Jerry Daniels, Sandy Ward, and Paul Prokop. Again, it has been cited as a cult film. Who... I mean, who is citing these movies as cult films? Hold on. There's an article called Film Industry in the United States. I'm going to just look up velvet also um so it says also worthy of mention is stephanie rothman who began writing and directing low budget productions in the mid 1960s because her output was mainly in exploitation films that emphasize thrills based sexualization of women and horror tropes her work is less known however films such as the student nurses the velvet vampire and Terminal Island have become cult classics. I, I don't understand that. Um, I, I just don't. Student nurses, m maybe. Sure. Because I, f I feel like it's someone trying to get a message out. Or trying to do good. Or trying to do something. But w again, working with the con constraints of being a woman in the film industry. Velvet Vampire, I, I did not like. Um, so a synopsis is there's a married couple. They go to a some sort of art gallery and they meet a woman. And the uh, for some reason, the woman invites this couple out to her desert house. And so they go over there and this woman is like, it's not really clear if she is a vampire. Maybe she is, maybe she isn't. But there is a a cemetery that she goes to that it's it says the the couple suspect that her husband is buried there and he's he was he died in eighteen seventy five or something like that. And she, um and then she explains like no my. That was my great-grandfather's grave, but he, um, grave robbers took his uh, body. So I decided to bury my husband in that empty grave. And then there's also things like the desert air keeps his corpse whole. And if they take him away from there, it's going to like dry up or turn into dust or something. And then over the course of the movie, like they... This woman kills a, um, a mechanic. 
she kills spoiler alert the the guy who is a part of the couple and there is a scene where he's supposed to be dead and he's propped up standing in a closet and then he collapses forward but he's supposed to be dead but you can clearly see his <laughs> you can clearly see his arms um he moves his arms in front of him to break his fall but again i'll say it a third time he's supposed to be dead um she also kills his uh servant friend of the family juan uh, i didn't like the velvet vampire um i i don't recommend it i don't know why it has been cited as a cult film um even the wikipedia page it's like um roger corman claimed he was disappointed with the final product and released it on a double bill with Italian horror film Scream of the Demon Lover. Again, in the reception, it says it has become a cult film. I, I don't know. I See, I, I don't know. This, this is what I was saying up at the top. I... I'm not sure if this this woman is or was a um an actually talented person because like I like I mentioned at the beginning there's all this stuff where she she studied at um UC Berkeley, she studied at USC, she was awarded all this stuff, gotten all these opportunities to do to do good work and then I think the film industry just kept saying no you can't do that you can't do that you can't do that so it's just a shame that the you can't really see her effort and her product her not product her effort and her talent on the final products on the screen cuz i didn't think I didn't think student nurses was great i didn't like velvet vampire i didn't think working girls was great um, but I, I did want to mention, um, um, she mentions that Corman wouldn't pay her anything. I, I'm assuming that he, he paid very little to people. That's how he kept budgets, um, low Roger Corman. Um, but her, but Stephanie Rothman's husband and her had to make a living. So she, it says she helped, she left Corman and helped set up Dimension Pictures. They were offered better pay. Um, but that was an economic decision for more money. It was not ideological. So um, she was get, able to get more money, but she still did not have more um, creative freedom. So while at Dimension Pictures, she did not receive greater freedom, creative freedom, or the opportunity to leave the exploitation field. However, she did receive more money and owned a small share of the company. So um, here's another quote. I'm very tired of the whole tradition in Western art in which women are pre always presented nude and men aren't. I'm not going to dress women and undress men. That would be a form of tortured vengeance, but I certainly am going to undress men. And the result is probably a more healthy environment because one group of people presenting another in a vulnerable, weaker, more servile position is always distorted. So 
it's interesting because all of these quotes are like she sounds like a very intelligent woman um here's another quote i didn't always get to choose the subjects of the film but i did have control over the attitude toward and the treatment of the subjects in this respect i didn't feel compromi- compromised or constrained of course, there were certain audience expectations that had to be satisfied, in particular for nudity and violence. Since I was making exploitation films with unknown casts, I had to show more nudity than they could ordinarily see in major studio films, but less than in the soft porn that was then in release. Further, um, da, 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 yada, 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 um, Because of these scenes, I also had to cast very attractive people, which meant that sometimes I couldn't cast the best actors, which I considered a very serious serious constraint then, and which continues to disturb me even now. That's interesting because the, the, the actors in her movies are very attractive, and they are not very good actors. And a lot of them, you look on Wikipedia page, if you're, if they're even clickable, they, you know, they didn't really go on to have a big careers. Some exceptions include, like, well, Sid Haig's in it, in Bloodbath, but he doesn't um, de-robe in that movie. Um, Cassandra Peterson was in The Working Girls, and she went on to become Elvira and a horror icon. Um... So Rothman and Swartz, I guess her husband, left Dimension in 1975. She tried to break out of the exploitation field, but struggled. I had good agents, and together we tried very hard to get me work, but we repeatedly discovered I was stigmatized by the films I had made. The irony was that I made them in order to prove that I had the skills to make more ambitious films. But no one would give me the chance. Then there was the other reason, the so-called elephant in the room, I was a woman. No one told me directly, but I often learned indirectly that this was the decision reason, decisive reason why many producers wouldn't agree to meet me. If that sounds exaggerated, remember that I worked in the in- American film industry from 1965 to 1974, and some of those years I was the only woman directing feature films. She later elaborated, I couldn't get any work in television. No one would even meet me. When it came to feature films, I was once invited by an executive at MGM to go and meet her, which was in the days when there were very few female filmmakers at all. I went and met her, and she said to me, we were in a story meeting yesterday. We're getting a new script ready for a first-time director who we want to use, and we were talking about the fact that we would like it to be a vampire film, something we, you know, like... The Velvet Vampire that Stephanie Rothman made. My response when I heard that was, well, if you want a vampire film like Stephanie Rothman made, why don't you get Stephanie Rothman? Um, It's, I don't know, I feel like, I feel like kind of bummed out about this. Um... In 1978, Rothman said she still hoped to make a motion, major motion picture. I never gave up hoping. If I hang in there long enough, my time will come. However, she is not credited on a feature film after 1978. 
She later reflected, for the next 10 years, I tried to find work making more ambitious films. My husband and I collaborated on a couple of challenging treatments and scripts that were well-received but never sold. I did sell a few options on scripts and screenplays on my own. I got a few offers to make more exploitation films, but I was never happy making them, and I didn't want to repeat myself. After enduring a decade of barely making a living, I gave up. She ended up leaving the industry. She says, For a few years, I ran a small proto-union for a group of U University of California professors doing their lobbying and writing a political newsletter about labor issues of concern to them. Then, st starting with a small inheritance, I began to invest in commercial real estate. Rothman says she looks back on her career with satisfaction and regret. Regret that I couldn't have made more films. Regret that I couldn't have made films that gave me a larger platform unto which to work in terms of finances, in terms of not having certain obligations to a certain kind of audience, to just to make a film that was dear to my heart in every respect. Not that the films I made don't have aspects that are very dear to my heart. I mean, they're not the complete films I would like have liked to have made. Acclaim. Again, I apologize. I'm just reading, but I, 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 I want to get this out there. Um, I don't know if if there's, I don't know. If I can do anything small to bring attention to this woman. Acclaim. I was never happy making exploitation films, said Rothman later. I did it because it was the only way I could work. However, her movies have come to receive much critical appraisal, particularly from feminist writers such as Pam Cook and Claire Johnson. She was honored with a retrospective at the 2007 Vienna International Film Festival. So, I don't know, it's... I think I feel like this woman was talented and intelligent and had a lot of promise and just couldn't do what she wanted to do, couldn't make movies that she wanted to. And, you know, let me see if I could find that quote. Um, she said she was... The only woman director from like 1965 to 1970 or something like that. So it's like, you know, if you're the only woman director, they're, they're not going to give you a lot of slack. They're not going to give you a lot of chance or opportunity. She is work. She is definitely working up. That's not the phrase. She is a, it's an uphill battle for her. And and like they like they said they just wanted her to make exploitation films like get a bunch of good-looking people who can barely act have them bone down um make sure you show nudity in your movies and and that was it and like she's she was born 1936 so she's like 2000 I am trying to calculate calculations in the Google search bar. Actually, I think you can do that. 2022 minus 1936. She's going to turn 86 this year. 
So definitely, she, I would assume. She, well, she never made a movie. She's not credited with a movie after 1978. So it's like she had her chance, and I, I definitely wouldn't say she blew it. I would definitely say she tried her best, but couldn't, couldn't really succeed, even though she, quote unquote, succeeded. You know, she made. A handful of movies she successfully made a handful of movies but she never made what she wanted to make she never even had a chance so it's it's kind of a bummer um um the velvet vampire she she wrote that she wrote it along with charles schwartz and maurice jules um again i didn't like the velvet vampire but I think you should check out a bloodbath for sure. So she also made 1973 group marriage. She wrote Beyond Atlantis 1973. She directed Terminal Island. Um, she directed The Working Girls. And she wrote Star Hops. And you, you can see through, I'm just um, hovering over the the titles and they they are all blue so you can click on them on wikipedia group marriage is just a bunch of people on a bed so i don't you know i don't know what that's about beyond atlantis looks like a sexploitation oh it's um a filipino american science fiction horror film directed by eddie romero written by charles johnson based on a story by stephanie rothman so that's interesting, Filipino-American. I feel like I still want to continue watching her, the rest of these movies. Um, but yeah, I I feel like no one is going is talking about this woman. Or, or maybe they are. I have no idea. I actually have no idea. I shouldn't have said that. But that's it for the movie beat that that kind of took a weird turn. I I I I was just reading Wikipedia for long stretches of this episode and I apologize. Um but I just wanted to bring that inf- information out there. Um and on to Mortal Kombat Annihilation. I got to be honest, I was dreading watching this movie because I didn't like the original. And I heard the second one was significantly worse than the first one. I'm trying to talk as I click so the click won't make it on the mic. Mortal Kombat Annihilation is a 1997 American martial arts fantasy film directed by John R. Leonetti in his directorial debut from a screenplay by Brent V. Friedman and Bryce Zabel. Let's take a look at John R. John Robert Leonetti. ASC, what does that mean? He's a a knight or something. He's a lawyer, esquire. Um he so his directorial debut was 1997 Mortal Kombat Annihilation. He made The Butterfly Effect 2 starring um not Kutcher, um, Annabelle, oh, he, he directed Annabelle, so 2014, well, I don't know why that, 
I don't know why I said that in a uh, positive tone, as if I was relieved that he's still in the business. But um, I didn't see Annabelle. I think I saw Annabelle comes home. Um, I don't... I saw one of them. I don't think I saw Annabelle. I'm, I'm sorry for clicking. That must be so annoying. Wolves at the door. So he's a horror guy. Wish upon the silence. Um... Starring the girl from Mad Men. Um, Lullaby. It's not clickable. So he's a horror guy. Uh, Mortal Kombat Annihilation is not a horror movie. Which is interesting. A screenplay by Brent V. Friedman, whose name is not clickable. And Bryce Zabel. So let's look at Bryce Zabel. Um... There's no list of his work. So current work, he was a lead. He's currently lead writer and producer on Animal Armageddon, an eight-part non-fiction miniseries for Animal Planet. Um, you know, I thought it was, I, 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 won, I started wondering, like I was scratching my head, why out of the whole cast of the original movie, only Robin Shu returned as Lu Kang and Talisa Soto returned as Kitana. But none of the original cast returned, and I don't know why. Uh, if you can't tell, I'm being sarcastic. Uh, this movie is not good. This movie looks like a terrible, terrible episode, like the worst episode of Xena Warrior Princess. Um... You know, Robin Shu, he was he was good in the first one. Talisa Soto was good in the first one. They try their best, I guess. Um, but I just I think none nothing about this movie really works. Um if I could say two things that I like about this movie, I will say Talisa Soto and Sandra Hess. You know what I'm saying? Let's look at Talisa Soto. I'm sure I did this um before when I reviewed or when I talked about the first one, but she is Miriam Talisa Soto is a former American actress and model. She is known for portraying Bond girl Lupe Lamora in the 1989 James Bond film License to Kill, and of course as Kitana, and she worked as a model. According to Wikipedia, she her last credit filmography credit is from Elysium and she played Tisha which was uncredited um I never watched Elysium Sandra Hess a Swiss actress and fashion model she is known for her role as Sonia Blade in Mortal Kombat Annihilation there should be a abbreviation for that Mocha Ann um she was in Encino Man as a cave nug. I don't know if that's a politically correct term. She was in Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., a TV film. Uh, Gargoyle, Wings of Darkness. I don't know what any of these are. So her first movie filmography credit on Wikipedia is Remarkable Power. Never heard of that. 
Um, Kevin Nealon, Tom Arnold. <laughs> what the fuck is that? Um, and in television, her last credit is 2012 CSI New York episode. She has an official website. Let's uh, click on that website. Oh, it's taking long to load. Taking long. Sending request to intake-analytics.wikimedia.org. I don't think this official website's going to load. Oh, geez. I could just go to sandrahess.com. Sandra Hess.com. It's not loading. Not loading. So, um, that's a shame. But let's let's go through this cast list some more. Um, James Remar, who I know as the dad on Dexter, I believe. I've heard his name a bunch, but I'm not too familiar with his work. I believe he was a big actor in the 80s, I want to say. Um, he plays Raiden because uh, Christopher Lambert decided not to reprise his role as Raiden. So again, you know... Raiden, who is a uh, god of thunder, who is a Japanese deity, um, played by two white men. Uh, let's move on. Sandra Hess. Uh, Lynn Red Williams as Jax. He, his name is not clickable on Wikipedia. I, he was definitely treated as a comic relief in the movie. Um, I did not laugh, although... He said, um, he said, um, I need to use the restroom. All I got is this metal things on my hands and no toilet paper. I didn't laugh, but I, you know, kind of, sort of, almost smirked. Um, Brian Thompson, who I'm not familiar with as Shao Khan. Rainer Scone as Shinnok. Um, I don't know any of these people. Musetta Vander as Sindel, um, Irina Pantaeva as Jade. Uh, I don't know any of these. So Johnny Cage is played by Chris Conrad in this movie. He dies in two seconds. I know him best from The Next Karate Kid. And it was just funny because he goes like, Johnny Cage kick, and he immediately dies. Like, it's a strange opening to the movie. You have Johnny Cage. He he was one of the big three in the original, and I know he's the most. He's one of the most popular characters from the game, and you kill him off in two seconds. Like why? 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 Um, Keith Cook, uh, Melina. Melina was in this. Oh yeah, Melina. Um, I I will just say that pretty much nothing about this movie worked for me. The fight scenes were whatever. I I, I will say there was one shot that was kind of cool. It made me go, oh, that was an interesting shot. And it was when a Sonya Blade was fighting the yellow Power Ranger robot. And she, like, did a flippity-doo and, like, grabbed him and did some sort of flippity-doo with him. 
and the camera kind of followed her as she tumbled and i was like okay that was kind of cool uh that was about it the rest of it um you know what i i thought i started thinking at the end of this movie why didn't the director or producer turn to the writers and and go you know what clearly we don't have the budget nor technology to um film a a a grand ending fight scene between a a a dragon and a multi-headed alien creature why don't we change this ending you know so nowhere in the production process the writers didn't go like the writers the writers were probably like this is going to be awesome let's put a multi-headed alien creature fighting a giant dragon at the end of the sequence the director never stopped and went you know i don't think we can do this let's just not or the producer or anyone because the cgi in this movie is embarrassing it's an hour and a half of cringe cgi it it looks bad it feels bad it made me feel bad as a person watching this it just made me think of like tragedies of the world it started making me think of like it just reminded me of like 9-11 like just bad cgi just makes me feel bad for some reason i didn't enjoy watching this film i didn't enjoy watching the bad cgi i didn't like it and that's really all i can say um i I could probably could not tell you the plot of this movie if i wanted to but let me let's just let me just try um so after the events of the last film there's a mortal Kombat tournament where outworld tries to you know if they win 10 times in a row they become the rulers of every realm i guess but Liu kang was able to beat um i can't think of his name but at least he was asian and so in this one there's like there's no more rules of the tournament we are outside of the rules and um Shinook and Shao Kahn want to merge the worlds together so they can rule. And they are not constrained to the rules of the tournament, so anything goes. And they kidnap Katana, and Katana is allegedly the key to the stopping Shao, Kahn, Shao Kahn's plan, but that was just uh, a lie, I guess. I don't know. Um, the movie doesn't really make sense um, scene to scene, but... Um, to be fair, I d- didn't really care. So I didn't pay the closest of attention to this movie. I didn't like it. Um, it made me feel bad. Um, and that's that's really it. The CGI is terrible. It's just it's just terrible. Let's look a little bit at this um, Wikipedia. Um, Robin Shu, who played, or Shao, played Liu Kang. His original Mortal Kombat contract was a three-picture deal, and but the sequel to this movie was shelved due to Annihilation's poor reception and disappointing box office performance. Attempts to produce a third film since then have remained stuck in development hell, with numerous script rewrites 
and storyline, cast, and crew changes. Um, you know, th- obviously, the the sequel to this never panned out, so it was it languished in development hell for nearly two decades until the series was rebooted by a 2021 installment. And I think I talked about Mortal Kombat on this podcast, the 2021 version. I didn't like it the first time, and then I liked it a lot the second time. And I believe they are working on a sequel. A sequel is in development with Jeremy Slater set to write the screenplay. Um, it doesn't... It doesn't say anything about um, um, a release date for this sequel, um, but I, you know, after the first one, I like I was like disappointed. I didn't like it, but after the second one, I'm like, yeah, that was a fun movie. It was well made. It, you could feel the passion behind that that um, reboot 2021 movie. Um, so that's that. That's it. I'm under an hour. I usually, you know, my last few episodes have gone an hour and a half. Or I think the Angry Birds movie went an hour and 45. This one, I'm at 58 minutes and I'm like done. I'm just done. You know, well, there wasn't any news. I I need to space these out more efficiently. Like, I, I have Tron scheduled to to be released on this upcoming Monday, July 4th. And then I already recorded the Angry Birds movie set to be released um, a week after July 4th. And now I'm, I have the, so I'm like three weeks in advance. I guess that's a good thing. I don't know. But um, I need to space these out more. Maybe I should have made, maybe I should just just made this a bonus episode. a bonus episode. I'm like speaking like Porky the fucking pig over here, okay? Uh, list of... You know, at the bottom of the Mortal Kombat Annihilation, there was a link on Wikipedia to list of the films considered the worst. And I'm just going to briefly look through here. Um, I, I really hate that Superman 4 The Quest for Peace is on here. Um, and I, I think that's just a combination of, you know, the company that was producing it ran out of money, so they had to do a lot of cuts, and I think they were, they, they wanted it to be a great movie, and it wasn't, but it's, I don't consider it one of the worst at all, um, I, I liked four a lot more than three, um, and um it was it was a sad unfortunate send off of the character as chris reeve as that character so i don't know i'm sure in 1987 people thought it was one of the worst movies ever made but watching it um today i don't think it's one of the worst movies ever made um looking at the 1990s um I don't really recognize any of these. Showgirls, Striptease, Batman and Robin. I like Batman and Robin better than Batman Forever. I'll say that. Um, 
um, epic movie, Meet the Spartans. I'm, I'm glad the, the parody movies kind of died out. Because I'm looking right in a row, 2007, epic movie, Meet the Spartans, which I'm assuming is a parody movie. Um, yeah. And then Disaster Movie. I'm, I'm glad that trend uh, petered out quickly. Because, you know, just begin and end with Scary Movie. You know what I mean? Uh, Cats, 2019. 365 Days. What's that? Um, oh, it's the one that Pat talked about. About um, it glorifies rape. So let me look at um, list of movies based on video games. I'm I'm kind of glad I ripped off the Band-Aid of of Mortal Kombat Annihilation because I was not expect I was not looking forward to watching it, and I'm glad it's over. It's over, guys. It's over. The next movie on the list of live-action English-language theatrical releases is Wing Commander, which I I refuse to buy a physical copy of it, uh, but who knows, maybe it's good. I think I read it got negative reviews. But I'm not looking forward to watching it. I've never played the game. I'm unfamiliar with the game. Um... I just, according to this poster, it's uh, Freddie Prince Jr. and Matthew Lillard, who worked together on She's All That and the Scooby-Doo movies. Saffron Burroughs, who I'm unfamiliar with. Um, I believe I can rent it for $3.99 or buy it for $9.99. I I don't really feel like doing either, so I don't know. I don't know if I'm going to do Wing Commander. Laura Croft Tomb Raider, I believe I've done on this podcast. And Resident Evil, I have I haven't seen any of the Mila Jovovich Resident Evil movies, so I I'm kind of looking forward to it, but um, I don't know. I I hope they're good. I don't know if they're good, but there's Resident Evil. I believe I did the sequel to Tomb Raider. House of the Dead by Yui Bowl? Like, that, that doesn't sound good. Um, I don't know. So we'll see. There, There's also this animated Street Fighter movie that I believe I can watch it streaming. Um, I wish I could get a physical copy of it, but I believe it's like 30 bucks. I'm like, I don't really want to pay 30 bucks for a... I don't know, but we'll see. I think that's all I got for this episode. I've like ran out of gas. I'm pretty sure this is probably one of my uh, lowest energy sounding episodes yet. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. I didn't drink the sugar-free Red Bull because I got work tonight. So I'm, I need to sleep before work. Actually, I have work early tomorrow morning, I should say. If you like pina coladas... Pardon me. If you like Final Fantasy VII, please check out youtube.com slash Odd Drummer. Oh my gosh, my voice. YouTube.com slash Odd Drummer Gaming. 
If you like drums and video games, please check out youtube.com slash drumj8. I hope you're well. I hope you and your friends and family are well, and especially your pets. I hope your pets are well and healthy and thriving. Take care of yourselves and each other. Um, I think that's all I got. Um, thank you for listening. Stay... Oh, God. Oh, I was about to say stay odd and keep on playing, but... Say hi to your pets for me.